You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, June 3rd, 2022, the first Friday of the month. Happy NFP Day, everybody. I'm Ash Bennington, joined shortly by Jim Bianco, president and founder of Bianco Research. Uh, Before we jump in with Jim, a quick look at U.S. equity markets. Uh, NASDAQ down for the day, flirting with almost uh, 2.5% decline as the numbers bounce around here on the close. Looks like 12,000. 12 spot 73. Uh, NASDAQ is the leading uh, loser of the day. I don't know if that's such a thing, leading loser. It's the worst performer of the day. S&P 500 off 1 spot 64%, closing out the week at 4,108. Dow Jones Industrial Average off the least of the major indices off uh, about 1%, closing out the day at 32,898, just below the 33 handle. Uh, Jim Bianco, welcome back to the show. Great to have you here, uh, especially on non-farm payroll day. We've got volatility in markets. We've got a lot going on. Jim, how are you taking it all in? What are your thoughts? Um, the payroll report, I think, was very telling because I believe we're now into a period that good news is bad news. Yeah. And that's what you saw today. 390,000 jobs were created in the month of May, at least the advanced estimate. That puts us less than 800,000 jobs away from restoring all the jobs that were lost during the pandemic. At one point, that was 20 million jobs were lost. Now we're only 800,000 away from restoring them. Right. But more to the point, when you see this kind of job growth, what does it mean at the Federal Reserve? Well, we could just hike and hike and hike and hike and hike because we're not going to create unemployment. And if we tighten financial conditions, the euphemism of that's a euphemism for make your life miserable if you are in the financial markets, right. you'll stop buying things and that will cool inflation. So if you continue to throw up strong labor numbers, it emboldens the Fed to be even more aggressive. Now, the narrative has shifted a little bit in the last two weeks or so. The narrative has gone from the Fed has already done enough damage that they are going to pause in September to the Fed will do enough damage that they will pause in September. In other words, the narrative could no longer stand it could no longer stand up to the idea that we've done enough damage that the Fed would have to reverse course. They haven't. And the only hope is what you heard from Jamie Dimon and what you heard from Elon Musk this week, right? A hurricane is coming. It's not here. 
It's coming. I have a super bad feeling about the economy. Not a feeling, not a bad feeling, but a super bad feeling about the economy. In other words, everything on June 3rd is fine. But my bet is everything soon, 60, 90 days, won't be fine. And that will cause the Fed to pause. And somehow that's supposed to be bullish for the market because never mind the fact that it should whack earnings, it should whack the economy, it should create all kind of economic damage. So when you get a strong payroll number, if you're in the equity market, that's not good. You would have right. preferred a weak number because then you could talk about a September pause. Last thought for you. Uh, last I looked, the odds of a rate hike in June are 100%. And the Fed has never failed to deliver on a 100% rate hike. The odds for a July rate hike are 100% as well, too. September is really what we're focused on. That's back to 71%. I'm sorry, 50 basis point hike. Uh, 71% for September. So it is hike, hike, hike for the next three meetings. And all you've got is, don't worry, there will be a calamity in the near future that will stop the September rate hike. Yeah. Well, Jim, there you have it. You've sketched out in three minutes or less the central challenge, the central dialectic that's happening right now uh, in these markets. All the core issues are there. Uh, you talked about this idea of good news being bad news. We're in this weird mirror image phase uh, from the 2008 days uh, when bad news was good news. Now good news is bad news. It's this weird world turned upside down uh, proposition that we see when you have uh, unconventional monetary policy. Uh, ultra accommodative monetary policy stretching back uh, over a decade. You know, we were talking a little bit about this in our meeting earlier, uh, talking about how markets have always been obsessed with non-farm payrolls, uh, but now more than ever. You hit this idea uh, about the damage that's been done to markets, this question of has enough damage been done already or does more damage need to be done in the future? Um, that is, again, the central thesis and also quite a grim proposition for the place that we find ourselves with inflation above the eight handle, uh, contraction in GDP, not two consecutive quarters yet, not officially a recession, but contraction in GDP, and the challenges that we're seeing in equity markets as well as fixed income. That's true. And so to answer your question, I want to address my comments to one person, Raul Paul. And uh, I want to say to Raul, that the game has changed and that everything is about inflation and that we are now in a period where it isn't that the Fed hikes until they break things. It's they hike until they break enough things that it causes inflation to crater, not peak, but crater. And I don't think we're close to that. And let me add in Another aspect of that as Ex well, explain too. Explain that, Jim. Just explain the mechanism that you're talking about there and the nature of the risk you've just described. So for the last 13 years, let me go with that, and even longer, you can even go 40 years, right? What do all macro analysts focus on, obsess about, talk about nonstop all the time? Growth. Is the economy growing? Is it creating jobs? Is it creating opportunity? Is GDP expanding? That is the central nexus of the world when it comes to macro research. That was the case. Now the central max nexus of the world is inflation. Yeah. What are prices doing? Are they going up? Are they going down? And you hear enough macro analysts go, what about growth? Doesn't matter. Growth doesn't matter right now. 
uh, only to the extent that you could say that growth has gotten so bad that it actually makes everybody listening to this podcast say, I don't want to buy things anymore because I'm so worried about the economy. That would bring down inflation. Only when you get it that bad will it stop. So really, the obsession is going to be about prices. Now, a couple things about prices. First of all, the Fed made a catastrophic mistake last year with transitory. Don't need to rehash that. We know that. This week, the president sat down with Janet Yellen and with uh, Fed Chairman Jay Powell. And let me, let's not mince words here, Ash. He ordered him, ordered him to bring down inflation is what he did. And then just to reiterate it, Janet Yellen came out that evening and said she got it all wrong when it came to inflation and that it is much bigger than we think. I find it very difficult to believe that in 2022, the Fed is going to make a mistake of being too dovish. They were too dovish last year and they're paying the price for it. The mistake the Fed is going to make this year is they're going to be too hawkish. They're going to hike rates way too much and they're going to create all kind of havoc. And I think that that's still coming unless you want to make the case to me that the inflation rate is going to organically peak and come down a lot in order for the Fed to back off. Now, before you make that case, Janet Yellen admitted she was at a mistake. Jay Powell said it was a mistake what they did with the inflation rate and that we need to retire the word transitory. Uh, ben Bernanke has come out and criticized the Fed. Basically, everybody has criticized the Fed for getting this inflation thing wrong. And so before we start announcing where the inflation rate is going to go next, I think we need to understand or ask the question, why did we get it so wrong up till now? And I do think that the error rate that we're the error we're going to look at is hike rates till it hurts and then do one more 50. It's not going to be a pause in September. Only way that happens is if you get a severe contraction in the economy. You'll know that. We'll be at 3,000 on the S&P if we get a severe contraction in the economy. Uh, but I still think that the, the risk moving forward from here is more rate hikes. The problem in the market is there's a huge denial right now. No, the Fed can't do that because my whole career, it's been about growth. And growth is going to slow. And when growth slows, the Fed turns on the printing press and supports the markets. They're going to do that again. They did that every single time that we did not have 8% inflation. But now that we have 8% inflation, they're in, a new they're in a new dynamic. And we need to understand that this dynamic is all about prices. And that's why, going back to my original comment, that's why today's number was not a good number. It just tells Jay he can hike rates without creating unemployment. And that's exactly what he's going to do. I mean, you tell this story almost of, of, uh, of a Fed being like a, a general who's fighting the previous war. Uh, this idea, favorite Real Vision Daily Briefing drinking game, drink whenever I say Scylla and Charybdis, trying to steer between these twin demons. Uh, and effectively, what you're saying is that the paradigm is shifting. It's shifting rapidly. And now the risk is that there's going to be this overcorrection uh, against the policy error that, you know, quite frankly, uh, Chair Yellen, uh, more or less stated had been the case. Yeah, let me let me let me you know put it in even more stark terms. After the president meeting with the Federal Reserve Chairman and reading off his cue card, it's the Fed's primary goal to bring down inflation. 
If they wind up undershooting, they pause in September and inflation stays sticky and it stays, you know, it doesn't. Now, to be clear, count me in the camp that says eight and a half might have been the peak in inflation, but count me in the other camp that says that's kind of an irrelevant statistic. What is relevant is how fast does inflation come down? And I've used a very technical term for this, not very. And that if it is not very fast coming down, then the Fed, the Fed risks the institution if they allow it to stay sticky high and they pause. The institution is better off breaking the economy into recession. But hey, you wanted us to fix inflation? We're going to do what we can to fix inflation. So I do think that the mistake, the the error or the mistake that will be made is not going to be towards a September pause. That's what everybody wants. It's going to be towards too much rate hiking. Yeah. Headline, Bianco, second derivative, not very fast. Uh, look, let, let's- uh, you, need 30 a- years, you need 30 years of experience to come up with those kind of <laughs> spiffy terms. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's like when the plumber tells you, you're not paying me for my 10 minutes. It's my 30 years of experience. Right. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. <laughs> hey, listen, Jim, let's talk a little bit about this just to frame this out for people. Uh, Fed chairs, of course, for people who may not uh, be familiar with the way this works, are appointed to four-year terms. Uh, they don't serve at the pleasure of the president. Uh, it is, uh, in theory at least, an independent body. Uh, are you suggesting that some of the pressure coming uh, from uh, from the powers that be in Washington, whether it's Congress or the executive branch, uh, that that is going to have this impact, that is going to push them to overcorrect Uh, on inflation and continuing to hike too fast for too long? You know, um, I don't think it's going to be the powers that be. I don't think that there's a that there's some kind of a a threat by the president. Jay, if you don't get inflation down this or that. But I think it's more about the institution and that people that work at the Fed there. When you go to work at the Fed, what is your primary job? Your primary job is to protect the institution, you know, and then your secondary job might be, you know, stable prices and high employment and all that other stuff. If the president of the United States announces to the public, this guy named Jay, it's his job to bring inflation down and he doesn't, then the whole institution of the Federal Reserve is going to have a big credibility problem. So their credibility is on the line right now. Right. And so they're going to do something to make sure that uh, that their credibility is saved. You want inflation down? I'll get inflation down. You might not like what I have to do to get it down, but you told me you want me to get rid of inflation. Then by God, I'm going to get rid of inflation. That's my mentality on this. So I right. think the only way you could see a September rate pause, I just want to say this again, I think that this is way off base, this idea that they're about ready to stop, unless we get a serious set of very bad numbers. But then, like I said, you'll know that because watch the S&P and the NASDAQ and everything else take a severe hit off of those very bad numbers. Um, You don't need to be an economist. The markets will tell you that. 
We don't have that just yet. So the Fed is going to keep raising rates. Yes, eventually, I think they're going to raise rates to the point where we might have a recession or that we'll break things into a recession. In fact, I'll give you a better than 50% chance that happens by the end of next year. Mm. But I don't think that's as imminent as everybody thinks it is. And that's why I think the Fed is going to stay uber aggressive. And again, I don't care what the payroll numbers say. I don't care what the GDP numbers say. I don't care what the retail sales numbers say. It's all about prices in 2022. But by the way, that U3 number, the unemployment rate number uh, out today and the payroll, uh, that great chart from the Wall Street Journal based on the NFP data that our producer showed earlier, I mean, that suggests that the thesis is very much in keeping with what you're saying. U3 rate at 3.6%, we're essentially back uh, at the 50-year low levels that we had going into the COVID crisis before we saw that just dramatic downshoot uh, in employment. So, you know, that's that's very much supportive. The chair uh, Powell has very much uh, been sort of um, involved in this narrative when he comes out and says labor markets are very tight. Again, yes. more, more to your point, uh, more room to hike. Yes. And and another let's pivot to another market, the bond market. Um, a week ago today, the 10 year yield was at 271. Um, it was near the low, nearly 50 basis points off its May 9th low. Monday was a holiday. In four trading days, we have now reversed half that rally. We're up 26 basis points in four trading days since Tuesday morning on the 10-year yield. And so we're back to 295, 296 um, on the 10-year. The bond market going up. See, one of the tells I've often said is I'll know when we've broken enough things because the bond market yields on bonds fall and they fall and they fall. Well, they fell for a couple weeks and then we had a decent week in the stock market. What happens in the bond market? We give back half the rally. So the bond market's not ready to say we're on the verge of a recession. Let's all pile in the bonds next stop 250 or 225. Now, eventually we might get there. But I do think that the bond market signaling this week by giving back half the rally since May 9th is basically telling us, nah, the Fed's got more work to do. And uh, it, there's, going to be a, there's going to be more pain to come in these markets. I wish I had a more positive message, but this is the problem when you have inflation. It has always been painful and difficult to get rid of. And this one is going to be no different. And what you see in markets is widespread denial. Oh, yeah, they're going to stop in September. Oh, yeah, they're, they're, there's inflation might still secretly be transitory. Um, you know, that kind of stuff to get people to believe that the next thing that's going to happen in markets is this widespread belief this is going to go away. Now, that doesn't mean we can't rally next week. Sure, the market give you higher points to sell the market. But we're not getting rid of this underlying economic problem Right. Unless we do something about demand and demand has to come down quite a bit and we haven't begun to do that yet. Jim, a very sophisticated analysis. This is where your 30 years of experience comes in handy because it's not just looking at the, the theoretical constructs of how uh, these sort of relationships work in macroeconomic models, but also understanding the institution. I think that was such an interesting point, talking about almost this, this idea of a single mandate. The single mandate is defend the Fed credibility of the Fed. 
uh, so that you can then execute on the dual mandate, uh, which is sort of the official uh, view of how the monetary policy gets construed at the Eccles building. Yeah, it, it is. It is important. And by the way, in that 30 years of history on the Fed, unlike your plumber, I'm not going to show you my butt crack either. Uh, as we, uh, as I give you all that. It's, to the host yes. viewers, I'm sure. Right. I bet you that's the first time the word butt crack has been used in the uh, Real Vision Daily Briefing. Jimmy, you're um, as well. I'm a trailblazer. I'm a trailblazer, Ash. What can I tell you? Um, but I do want to mention one other thing in all seriousness. Um, I know there's probably some people screaming at me, supply chain, supply chain. The Fed can't print ships. The Fed can't print oil. The San Francisco Fed did a study. And what we found in their study was um, two things. One, the U.S. has the highest core inflation rate in the developed world. We're number one, the highest one. Now, every country has is, is got the same problems because of the Ukraine war, because of supply constraints, and because of high oil prices. All of them have it. But yet we have a higher inflation rate than Europe, than Japan, than Australia, New Zealand, and all the other uh, developed countries in the world. Now, why is that? Well, the San Francisco Fed went one step further. We stimulated all of the, all of the Fed printing, the fiscal stimulus, the giant deficit, the mailing of money <clears throat> that we did through all the stimmy, stimmy checks. We were also, number one, we did more of that than any other country. And we actually had one thing happen in our country that didn't happen anywhere else. This personal income, that's your wages, your, your gains in the stock market, um, all your other sources of, of, of income you bring in went up during the pandemic. U.S. went up. No one else went up. They all went down by varying degrees. So guess what? Right. We have a demand problem with inflation, too. So this, according to the San Francisco Fed, the way they break it down, and I think they're right, 2%, there's 8% inflation. 2% of that is the 2% structural inflation that we always have, the Fed's 2% target. 3% of that inflation rate is supply chain. 3% of that's excess demand. So the Fed's got a lot of work to do when it comes to excess demand. We have the highest inflation rate in the world because we stimulated more. That's what they can reverse. So this is not just about, well, they're just going to keep raising rates and they can't do anything about the supply chain problem. That grossly underestimates the demand problem that we've created with too much money that the Fed can reverse. They can't get the inflation rate down to two, but they can at least take three basis, 300 basis points out of the inflation rate. And I think that's exactly what they're planning on doing. Yeah. Jim, talking of which, at the intersection point of demand, uh, supply chains and energy, uh, comes this question of what is happening in the oil markets. I wanted to take a look uh, at a conversation between geopolitical strategist Peter Zion and our own Maggie Lake here at Real Vision, uh, a show called What the World Will Look Like in Five Years, airing today on Essential Plus and Pro, that speaks to precisely some of those points. Let's take a look. Now, with energy, the shock has not yet hit. The Indians are proving willing to run the potential blockade and the potential embargoes and the potential boycotts in order to get Russian crude on the cheap. And as long mm -hmm. as they are doing that, there's probably about a million, maybe a million and a half barrel more of demand out of the world for Russian crude than there would be otherwise. Now, with the Europeans on May 30 deciding that they were going to go ahead with an oil 
block. That is going to make about two and a half to three million barrels of Russian crude homeless. That's a big deal. So we're only now getting to the point where there's significant, permanent reductions on Russian output. And if that holds for just a few weeks, pressure will build up within the Russian system through their pipes all the way back to the wellheads, and they're going to have to shut it in. And as a rule in the permafrost, once you shut it in, that well is now never going to be turned on again because you get cracks throughout the system from the pressure builds. This is the permafrost. It's problematic in many ways. That crude doesn't come back. And the only way that the Russians were able to bring it back after the post-Cold War collapse was by bringing in Western technicians who are no longer available. So at some point later this year, we're looking at somewhere between three and six million barrels of Russian and Kazakh crude just falling off the market and never returning. That's not priced in yet because it hasn't happened yet, but we'll get there. Peter Zion and our own Maggie Lake. Uh, that's a show out today on Essential Plus and Pro talking about homeless Russian crude permafrost, the idea that crude supply does not come back on demand. It's a technically complex process. And this ominous note uh, that with energy, the shock has not yet hit. I should say, by the way, on the day, WTI up almost 3%, closing out uh, trading today here at 120 spot 32. Jim Bianco, thoughts on oil, the energy market, and its intersection with demand. First of all, I'm a big fan of Peter Zions, and I think he's exactly right that what you need to remember about oil that comes from cold places like Siberia, that those processes can never stop uh, because those pipes have to keep going. And if they ever do stop and they freeze, they're done. It's a little different when you're in the Middle East and Saudi Arabia in the middle of a desert. You have a little bit more flexibility to be a swing producer. So there can be big problems coming along. So the Russians, they can't stop. And if they do stop, if they're forced to stop, then their oil is permanently off the market. There is an imbalance in the oil market. And that's why you're seeing some shops like Bank of America and the rest arguing that we could see $6 gasoline before the end of the year, because there can be that type of a supply disruption coming as we move forward. So yeah, the, the final story has not been written about what's been happening with oil prices and that they could keep going. And by the way, Ash, here's a fun fact for you. So far this year, the national average of, of gasoline, which is $1.72 a gallon nationwide, is up 42% this year right now. And there's no signs of that slowing down either. In, in fact, if anything, the price of gasoline nationwide has been accelerating higher in the last week or so. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Uh, talking about automobiles, I wanted to take a look at Tesla. This is an interesting story. It's where the micro meets the macro. Uh, we've got a couple of charts. Tesla off, I believe, 9% on the day, off about 41% year to date. The question that I have for you, Jim, is, is this a leading indicator uh, of so-called long-duration stocks 
where cash flows get discounted more steeply as interest rates rise? Or is this an idiosyncratic uh, indicator only of what's happening at Tesla? So <clears throat> let me back us up and let me remind us that about a month ago, there was um, a big whack to Amazon's earnings. And Amazon said that they had overhired in regards to the reopening of the economy. I think you could write that large for most tech firms. I mean, I know that the the, the new narr another narrative on Wall Street, why the Fed's got to stop, is look at this list of all of these companies that are putting on hiring freezes. They're largely technology companies. They largely misjudged. They largely hired way too many people uh, in that the, their, their expectations were unrealistic as far as where the economy was going to go. So on one respect, I'm going to put I'm going to put Tesla into that camp that their hiring freeze is largely because they they hire too many people like a lot of other firms did beforehand. His super bad feeling, I, I hinted at that earlier, where uh, Musk said in an email that he has a super bad feeling about the economy that is shared by a lot of executives. Jamie Dimon earlier this week said that there's a coming economic hurricane We've seen this in the Duke University CFO survey and some other CEO surveys uh, that's, that a lot of them are expecting a recession in the next year. Well, here's the problem. If enough of them believe this, they're going to alter their behavior as if we are going into recession and it will become self-fulfilling um, at this point. I think about the only thing the Fed could do to try and dissuade that theory. Oh, I should add before I say this, the number one reason everybody cites that there's going to be a recession is Fed policy. They think the Fed is going to over tighten and break the back of the economy. Well, this is going to be self-fulfilling because if the Fed does have to deal with inflation, they might have to over tighten. So calling it off and saying, OK, well, we won't raise rates because that could break the back of the economy, could make it worse for the Fed. They should raise 100 at the next meeting and just get it over with as fast as they can. Of course, they're not going to do that. They don't because they've got what's called forward guidance, where they have to kind of telegraph everything that they do and they have to be slow and methodical. But I think that this telegraphing is going to get in their in their pro, in the way and getting in the way means so many people are so worried that the Fed is going to get this wrong, that whether or not we're on our way to a recession, we might want to have one anyway. Like I said, I think they keep hiking till they break something. My only difference with a lot of other people is I don't think we're ready to break something so they got to keep hiking for a while. Yeah. Jim, this, I think, is the fastest moving 30 minutes uh, in financial television. Uh, we've burned through about 30 minutes already. But I wanted to get in a couple of questions, if possible, from our viewers. We'll do a little bit of a speed round here at the end. Uh, this is a really good one that comes to us from Leon from the Real Vision website. Uh, and the question is, will the Fed get more aggressive on QT, that, of course, is quantitative tightening, rather than more interest rate hikes. So the question, in essence, is the policy normalization mechanism. Does the Fed rely on shrinking the balance sheet, uh, perhaps instead of hiking rates more aggressively? Uh, the short answer is no. And the reason I say the short answer is no is two reasons. One, the Fed recognizes that QT at this scale has never been attempted. They're very nervous about what it means. So they've already pre-announced that this month in June, we're going to reduce the balance sheet by $47.5 billion, and we're going to ramp that up to by September to $95 billion. So really what the Fed has said is June, July, August, and September, they're already set in stone. 
The policy is already set. They're not going to change that policy. Maybe October 1st, they could consider altering the policy by going even faster or potentially going slower. But they're not going to do anything anytime soon on that. Rate hikes, they have done for 100 years. Rate hikes, they feel like they understand a lot more. And rate hikes will be their preferred choice because of the comfort of history of doing that versus the unknown of doing QT at the level that they're planning on doing it. Almost sounds like looking underneath the lamppost for your keys because that's where the light is. Right, exactly. Jim, final question, and this is something that we were talking about uh, a bit off camera going into the show. Uh, the question comes to us from Double C from the Real Vision website. Question for Jim, crypto has not decoupled from high beta growth equities. Do you see this ever happening and what could initiate this move? By the way, we should say this is in the context uh, right now of where we are with Ethereum, which we were talking about earlier. You, of course, have blue laser eyes up on Twitter. I'm curious to hear your perspective on your profile pick. But look, Ethereum right now, uh, around uh, 1,756 on my screen right now, considerably off its highs of about 4,800 November 2021. Jim, thoughts on coupling, decoupling, and of course, laser eyes. Well, let me start with laser eyes. So my laser eye pick has been well over a year in the making, and it originally was supposed to be just kind of a simple thing. I was going to change it and change it and change it. But now I'm trapped. I'm afraid that if I change it at 1750, people will read way too much into what it means. I am a long-term bull in the crypto space. I will always be a long-term bull in the crypto space. So I'm going to leave my laser eyes out there till we get to 5,000. And then maybe I'll adjust it then because I feel like it's safe at an all-time high um, at that point. And yes, I do think we'll eventually get there one day as well too. To your larger point, what about the what about the the correlation between the traditional markets and the TradFi markets. Yeah, you're seeing some signs around the edges that there might be a decoupling taking place. Last week, you saw crypto didn't have a good week, but stocks did. This week, we saw them start to move a little bit you know, opposite each other. So we might be seeing some around the edges that that crypto decoupling is taking place. Ultimately, I've argued I don't think it's right for crypto and traditional markets to be so correlated to each other, but they are because of institutional adoption. And I've said it's just as simple as what does institutional adoption mean? Some big money manager says, let's buy some crypto, open a Coinbase institutional account and go buy some Bitcoin. It's no more complicated than that. And they say, OK, well, who's going to track this stuff? We'll get the technology analyst guy in here. It's his job to be the crypto analyst. And he thinks crypto is just another technology. So he thinks of it as just an, an, another version of the ARC fund. And so it moves up and down with it. Is that correct? I don't think it is correct. I think crypto is something other than a high beta version of the NASDAQ or the, high, or the ARC fund. But that's what it is now. Maybe we're starting to see a little bit of, of, a, of a decoupling on it around the edges. Um, it's still too early to say. I mean, it could always recouple next week. That's why I say it's too early to say. But in the long term, whenever I get to my 5K forecast and get rid of my laser eyes, uh, it will decouple. And what I mean by that is the crypto will go up at some point. It doesn't matter what the stock market's doing. That might not be this year. That might still be a little ways away. Yeah. But I do think ultimately it's coming. In other words, what I'm saying is it's got a whole different risk profile than NASDAQ stocks. 
it doesn't have the same risk profile and it shouldn't trade that way, but it does now. And arguing that it shouldn't doesn't mean it won't be so. It's going to stay yeah. that way for a while, but I'm looking for reasons to think that it's going to start to change. Jim, great show here today. Obviously, lots happening in markets. Uh, an excellent, well-framed 50,000-foot overview on everything that's happening. we got about 45 seconds left. Last word goes to you. Yeah, no butt crack. That would be the, the, the last word. Just keep in mind that the Fed is in a difficult spot. They blew it last year. They've been ordered by the president to do something about inflation. They cannot be timid. They cannot be timid about dealing with this inflation problem. Now, if you turn to me and say, serious shit has broken, the stock market's a mess, okay, when that happens, if that happens, we could talk. But until then, they cannot be timid on the inflation fight, especially after what happened last year. Yeah, thanks for joining us again, Jim. Thank you. And thanks for watching Real Vision Daily Briefing. We'll be back on Monday with Katie Stockton. Have a good weekend, everybody. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.